Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 14. You might remember that I, I started this occasional series, Let Thy Profiting Appear, um, because in the midst of my varied studies for a great many different kinds of things, I, I frequently come upon some really interesting things, and um, uh, well, I would share them if I can. It helps me too, because when I have an opportunity to uh, share them, it helps me to uh, hold them fast, helps me to uh, bury them more deeply in memory so I can so I can retain them so that I can so that I can keep them. And just this uh, past week i I was um, working on and designing the next sermon in Chronicles on Terah, uh, Abraham's father, and the revival of true religion in the, in the patriarchal family. But in the midst of my, uh, my other studies, I, I took up the, what are sometimes called the, the Puritan sermons again, um, while going going all the way back, I think, to the late 17th century. It's when they were preached, but I think there was a, uh, a six-volume edition published even then. So they become famous um, as the Puritan sermons, but um, they were once upon a time, I think, known as the Cripplegate sermons or lectures or something like that. Once upon a time, I, I had started to read through them and, and didn't finish. I got called away to other things. And now all of these years later, I thought that I would, I would return to them. And uh, the very first sermon in the very first volume is very interesting. It's, it's on the conscience and how to be universally conscientious, um, a subject interesting on the face of it but I was I was absolutely riveted by uh, Samuel Annesley's presentation of the various states of of the conscience you might you might call it or um, uh, yeah I, I can't think of any better way to say it than that and there were two in particular because of things that are going on around me that that were of peculiar interest. He talked about a doubting conscience um, when we're not sure what is right and what is wrong in a particular case. Is it right to do this? Is it wrong to do this? Right. And he talked about the difficulty of that in trying to get information. He said, sometimes the Lord will provide us an out anyway uh, in in many of those kinds of situations, we might we might be sure that that of two options, at least one of them is lawful. We're sure of that, so we can just take that. So, for example, if you think about a 
a particular recreation, if you're not sure it's lawful or not, you could just not do it because with respect to a rec recreation, nobody would be making the argument that you have to do that particular one, for example, right? So if you have a doubt, there is nevertheless a, a way out um, without, without uh, offending or burdening the, the conscience, as it were. But sometimes, sometimes there's no easy out in that way. We, we really need an answer. And so we, we need to study and search the scriptures. And, and perhaps if we're, if we're not able to find, find a place to help us, consult with um, parents, pastors, older and more experienced Christians perhaps to direct us to, to those texts of scripture that might, might be most helpful to, to clear the doubt. So that was interesting. But then the next one was even more so. He talked about the problem of the scrupulous conscience. And what he had to say about this was, I, I have to admit, a, a bit of a surprise for me. He said that um, he said that the scrupulous conscience would be one where you are pretty sure that a thing is lawful, and yet there is something about it usually couched in weak argument that simply makes us uncomfortable about it. He, he even evoked the etymology of the term scruple, which comes from Latin. It's uh, like a small stone that you've picked up in your shoe, right? It doesn't make walking impossible, but there's a little bit of uh, discomfort that, that is attending it. Now, um, with respect to this, um, I don't know what you might expect from from the Puritans. You might you might expect uh, maybe perhaps some some yielding to the scruple, but that that is not what he commended. He said that we must engage the scruple, right? Dispel its its weak argumentation. Because when we leave those kinds of things um, present and unresolved, if we if we turn away from activities that we really know to be lawful, but carry with it this or that bit of discomfort, when when we do that, he did point out that it tends to sap our joy, our liveliness in our religion our enthusiasm, our zeal, like all of that positive um, emotional energy, if you will, tends to get sapped by such things and a certain sort of inappropriate rigidity sets in with all kinds of attending heaviness and uh, unpleasantness. So he, it was very interesting that his recommendation was to face the scruple down, to challenge it, and to to dispel it, so that we might walk in uh, the freedom that is allowed to us, and the joy that is afforded to us, um, both as God's creatures and as as the redeemed of the Lord.
so with these things in front of me, I, I found my mind traveling away from First Chronicles and traveling towards some, some other very interesting things. And I thought if I don't address them now, I'm likely to uh, pass by them and not, and not take them up. But I do think that they're helpful. But to get where we need to go, we need to lay some texts in front of us and then some ideas and with God's help, perhaps we'll be able to to make some some worthwhile and edifying connections between the pieces. So look with me at Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, Another, who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost, dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not uncharitably, walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. 
For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So this is, this is the famous text and the famous problem of the stronger brother and the weaker brother. The stronger brother who clearly sees an indifferent thing to be indifferent, but the weaker brother who mistakes an indifferent thing as a moral matter. And, um, and Paul is dealing with how their various responsibilities, how they are to treat one another so that, um, so that unity and concord is maintained. We'll come back to this passage in a, in a few minutes. Turn with me now for some additional groundwork to Titus chapter 1. So you remember, um, and we, we did this once upon a time, uh, some of you were probably with me at at, um, at that time to work through the first chapter of uh, Titus. Uh, but Titus has been left behind by Paul in Crete to set in order the things that are wanting. So Paul preached in Crete. People were converted. Paul pressed on. But he didn't leave the people without provision. Titus was left behind to... Uh, 
finish setting up um, gospel church government and uh, worship on Crete. Uh, he has given directions for um, the office of uh, bishop, pastor, minister. And uh, in verse 9, he finishes up the list of qualifications with holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Um, that's always and everywhere a, a qualification, but it had a, had a very immediate and pointed application because of the, the context there in Crete. Verse 10, notice the, the logical connection for, right? So we've got to be able to um, exhort and to convince gainsayers for or because there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be found that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. So just, just note very, very quickly, uh, we are given something of what you might call the national character of the inhabitants of Crete. And it is true that um, uh, we don't want to completely flatten out a culture, but, but cultures continue to produce, partic uh, tend to produce particular individuals with certain characteristics. And with respect to moral things, certain strengths and certain weaknesses. Um, the Cretans have a lot of weaknesses. Liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This is a, the testimony of their own, um, of one of their own poets. Um, not, not flattering. And the modern Western mind draws back from such as stereotyping, but Paul confirms that this witness is true. If I were to sum it up, uh, there's a certain sort of hard-headedness and thick-skinnedness that um, is being indicated here. And uh, to break through, what he exhorts Titus to do is to rebuke them sharply. So uh, when people in a different kind of spiritual condition need correction, a different exhortation might come. Like with the Ephesian Christians, Paul exhorts Timothy to be gentle with all men, apt to teach. But here you have a different kind of spiritual uh, character, and here the, the commendation is to a, to a sharp rebuke. But the purpose of it is not to hurt them, but rather to help them. 
purpose clause that they may be sound in the faith. But then what's so interesting about this is um, soundness in the faith is further described uh, by things that would be contrary to it. In other words, if these things are done, soundness of faith is going to be compromised in some measure, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men. In other words, to the extent that uh, the Cretans gave heed to, paid attention to, um, Jewish fables or uh, their commandments, to the extent that they do that, it's going to be contrary to a soundness of faith. And we do know, of course, that um, the Judaizers did this kind of thing. Interestingly enough, the rising rabbinic literature would actually have these two things as two um, principal types. Uh, halakha, which was like um, commentary on commandments, which frequently contained a lot of other commandments. What does it mean to remember the Sabbath day? They would make up all sorts of other commandments to, as a fence around that commandment. If you keep all of our other commandments, you'll certainly not violate uh, the Sabbath day. So we know that they did that. And then Gemara, they did all kinds of um, interpretive things, uh, filling in spaces and biblical narrative with their own with their own traditions and so on. So it's very interesting that Paul alludes to these things pretty early in the development of them. These are these are things that are already happening and will eventually fully flower in um, uh, Talmudic uh, rabbinical thinking and uh, and theology. Now I bring I bring up this text, and if I could take you back to uh, Annesley, remember um, he surprised me a little bit when he was aggressive um, concerning the scruple when somebody is persuaded that a thing is is lawful, and yet uh, there is a little bit of discomfort that is wanting to scare them off from that activity or some such thing. Uh, he did not, he did not commend a yielding to that scruple, but rather, uh, rather an assailing of it for its removal. And he seemed to think it was very important that it was necessary for joy, enthusiasm, for zeal. And when we think about it beyond our own our own emotional state, uh, it does also tend to injure our witness if we become a, a straightened and morose people. Um, for people that know and understand their, their freedom in Christ, they won't be impressed. And um, even the lost and dying world they don't really know, but uh, th but they do see that there's a certain sort of constrictedness, uh, an oppressiveness of atmosphere, and they're not impressed either. Um, 
so it does it does hurt our it does hurt our witness and we might even think of our witness to the generation that is that is coming up under us we want to be careful not to misrepresent the christian religion now i wanted to come here to to titus because there's something in us you might know it firsthand history certainly demonstrates it we tend to think that the strictest position is like the most faithfully religious position but paul is warning us that this is not the case and i think annesley had learned that very well from the pauline theology and was commending it to us ultimately when it comes to ethics a sound faith identifies commandments as commandments prohibitions as prohibitions and things indifferent as things indifferent uh, perfect soundness in the faith would identify all three of those precisely and would have no confusion among the categories um, to the extent that we do this we would we would have in the, on that at least on a particular issue uh, we would justly bear that the title of the stronger brother when you think of, of uh, Romans chapter 14 um, when we when we receive the mere commandments of men which normally entails taking things that are indifferent and conceiving of them as being moral um, uh, when we embrace them Paul warns that's contrary to a sound faith there's something in us that always wants to think that the stricter position is the more religious one but Paul says when we move things from from the category of indifference into the category of the moral we've actually acted contrary to soundness of faith so it's it's not it's not necessarily more religious to be stricter on an issue uh, the ideal position is to be to be able to see things as they are with respect to god's um, uh, god's commandments his moral requirements to neither add to it nor nor take away from it so we want to have uh, clarity of vision you might have noticed this operation in yourself i know that i have noticed it in myself over the years when uh, and i think of annesley's scrupulous conscience when i when i bump into something and there's something about it in this thing or that thing that makes me a little uncomfortable um, uh, frequently I'll want to think well the the more religious position or whatever is going to be to be the strictest here but Paul is Paul is actually warning us that that's not the answer but as a grand historical demonstration that human beings do this and tend very much to it you might think about the long history of asceticism which is kind of um, it's kind of crazy the pagan world did this both 
both it, some of its great religious leaders and some of its philosophers would deny the lawful uh, pleasures and needs of the body so they wouldn't sleep enough they wouldn't eat enough they wouldn't eat pleasant things if they ate at all um, foregoing marriage and its pleasures and all of these kinds of things um, turn, turn with me very briefly to First uh, Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. Paul actually warns that that spirit, and the, the denial of the goodness of creation, if, if you go back be, behind the apostolic era that wasn't generally a jewish thing I, I wouldn't say that there was no asceticism among the jews but it never appealed appeared to be a prevalent position but it was something that came up a lot among the gentiles they felt it was there was something about it that was extra special extra holy to deny things like food or um the pleasures of marriage and the marriage bed and so on. Um, Paul treats this as a denial of the doctrine of creation and the goodness of, of creation, a denial that the God of providence has given these things as good gifts uh, to be enjoyed, uh, to be received uh, with thanksgiving and with prayer. Uh, and then he points out that while the Gentiles were exercising themselves in that particular way, um, mere bodily exercises, as it were, um, over against that, Timothy is told to exercise himself to real godliness. Uh, so not, 
not a not asceticism, not humanly invented practices, procedures, commandments, but but God's own commandments. They were to exercise themselves in those particular things. Well, it, it flourished among the Gentiles, and then as as Christianity began to spread in the Greco-Roman world, there always was some of it, but it but it really took because of course Christianity is now spreading among people who will look at their ascetic philosophers and former religious leaders as being extra holy, and so there's going to be some some draw to this that never really did flourish among among the Jews. But but particularly after the age of the martyrs, when the Roman persecution stopped, it was almost as if Christendom was was um, was seeking substitutes for those great heroes, and then they found them in a new class of ascetics. You have at that time the the rise of monasticism. First the um, Paramedical monks, the the desert hermits, but then later among the the Kenobitic monks, the um, the community uh, monks, as it were, and then for many many ages they were viewed as like superhero Christians, Christians that go above and beyond normal people need to eat and sleep and get married but these are these are people that have transcended all of those things uh, at the end of the day paul says all of this is is contrary to a sound faith the ascetic mind and hear me the ascetic mind is not a better religious mind it is a worse one to take things that are indifferent, but good gifts in and of themselves, and to see them as being prohibited to us, um, might appear to fallen flesh to be like spiritually Herculean or some such thing, but at the end of the day, it's really not. It's retrogressive spiritually, as Paul has said it. It is. It is contrary to uh, a sound faith. It is uh, degeneration. And so we always we always need to watch ourselves and make sure that we don't get we don't get pulled into the ascetic trap when we're uncertain about something. Um, you know, practically speaking, if we have a completely doubting conscience, we might stay away from something because we're unsure. But we need to recognize that we're staying away because we're unsure, not because we know the thing uh, to be unlawful in and of itself, right? Um, so this, this brings me back to the to the issue in Romans chapter 14 and and the problem and even the the paradox of the stronger and weaker brother. Just to glean some things off off the surface of the of the text. So so like I said, the problem has to do largely with how they view indifferent matters. 
And just to take one during during the apostolic era, let's just take the dietary legislation because Paul keeps coming back to this. Um, of course, under the old administration, the dietary law was moral, right? God, I mean, it's not considered moral law. It's considered ceremonial law, but it was a moral matter. You weren't free to disobey God with regard to it. But now its status has changed. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled and it's been taken away. It's been carried away. And so uh, it is no longer binding upon believing people. Paul insists that it not spread to uh, the Gentiles, but it does appear that the Jews were given a period of time to let it go. This really helps to, to reconcile um, various facets of Paul's attitude towards the ceremonial law, the holy days, uh, dietary regulations, and so on. Several different ways that he treats it. I, I once read in an old Puritan, he gave a model that I found very helpful. He said, it's as if the ceremonial law died with Christ. And then from the death of Christ to uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it's, it's as if um, the ceremonial law is being carried out in procession for burial, but at 70 AD it was buried, never to be resurrected again. And of course, practically speaking, most of the most important bits of the ceremonial law couldn't be fulfilled because our Lord Jesus Christ had taken the temple away. Right, Most of that ceremony couldn't be fulfilled. So, um, this would be that period where uh, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. Since it's going to be buried, uh, Paul will not have them spread it to the Gentiles. He absolutely insists that no one think that these things are, are necessary for salvation. They never would. Think about his treatment. Uh, they never were. Think about his treatment in the epistle to the Galatians. Uh, but it does appear that the Jews themselves were given about a generation to let go of them. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, imagine that uh, when, you know, you're present at Pentecost, you were a 60-year-old Jew, you had lived all your days in, in faith and expectation of the coming of Messiah, you have kept the ceremonial law all of your days, um, seeing Messiah preached in that and believing upon him in those things. This has been part of your relationship with the Lord. This is very deeply ingrained in you. Uh, as How difficult it would be after you hear that the Lord Jesus, Messiah, has actually come. He has fulfilled all things. How difficult it would be to turn on a dime and simply let go of those things. And about a generation's time makes a lot of sense, right? There's a, there's enough time for um, the older ones to uh, die out. If you're really young, you have time uh, to let go. A generation young enough would have no attachment to those things. So there's a period of time given for letting those things go, a gracious condescension. And so you see Paul's... Um, uh, the status of those th those things have fully moved into 
the category of adiaphora, of things that are morally indifferent. So if a Jewish believer uh, was still constrained in his conscience concerning those things and he wasn't eating, uh, Paul makes allowance for that. If there was one who fully understood that they had been taken away and was eating what had previously been reckoned as unclean, Paul makes, Paul makes provision for that. Interestingly enough, the stronger brother, and this is, this is really important, the stronger brother knows that the indifferent things are indifferent, and he knows that he knows. Ideally, like in an ideal situation, they would all be the stronger brother, and uh, special provisions for maintaining unity wouldn't, wouldn't be necessary. But we have a less than ideal situation because there are some um, that are misidentifying those elements. They consider them to be moral when they are really things indifferent in and of themselves. And this creates all kinds of, uh, all kinds of problems. So this one is called the weaker brother. He doesn't understand. But here's one of the great practical problems with the, with the weaker brother. He doesn't, the stronger brother knows himself to be the stronger brother. Uh, the weaker brother usually does not know himself to be such because he thinks that the matter's moral and he probably thinks that he, that he understands it. Now you can see how Paul's exhortations to these two categories would preserve peace if they both do them. So the, so the stronger brother who, who understands that this matter is indifferent, uh, he is to forego the practice and enjoyment of those things if it should in some way cause his brother to stumble. And there's a lot of ways that it could. Like if the weaker brother thinks that, you know, um, staying away from the unclean food is morally necessary, but he sees the stronger brother partaking in the unclean food, then it can disrupt their relationship because he thinks his stronger brother is actually sinning. Maybe he thinks it's a matter of discipline or some such thing. Or he might have such a regard for the stronger brother that he might be um, inclined to partake of the unclean food while his conscience is yet barking at him. And this isn't good either. It's clean in and of itself and lawful in and of itself, but unclean for him because he's partaking with a troubled conscience. So... Um, the stronger brother, recognizing the situation, uh, is to exercise his liberty in such a way that he doesn't become an occasion for stumbling for the, for the weaker brother. Now, to fully complete this picture, the, the weaker brother has duties to do too. He's not to judge the stronger brother. And if they both do that, the situation's not ideal, because ideally they would both be the stronger brother. But unity is maintained. The stronger brother is careful not to become an occasion for stumbling. And the weaker brother is not judging the, the stronger brother. And so uh, a measure of harmony is maintained. But here's the practical difficulty. And one that I, I became painfully aware of 
through through the course of my my ministry and it's the paradox of the weaker brother for this to work really well the weaker brother has to at least be able to entertain the possibility that he's the weaker brother so he can do the weaker brother's duty which is not judging the stronger brother but that's not easy to get there because normally the weaker brother doesn't think of him as himself as such so how do we go how do we go about getting to a place where we might well, we might be able to do the duties of a weaker brother. And maybe I might lay this, this challenge. I don't know with absolute certainty, but probably every one of us, at least on some issue, is the weaker brother, right? And all it might take is a scruple, right? But probably on some issue, we are the weaker brother and we have the, the job of not judging the, the stronger brother, Okay, so I think that probably there there are uh, probably two closely conjoined virtues that would open up the possibility. You might even conjoin them into one, but um, open up the possibility of entertaining the idea that on that particular issue, maybe I'm the weaker brother, and if once that idea comes up, then I can I can do the duty of of the weaker brother but but at the end of the day maybe i can contract it all down just to humility at the end of the day um but i would i would want to connect it with sobriety of judgment there it's it's a very common intellectual habit isn't it we we have some evidence for a position, some thoughts, um, but a lot of times we're not wanting to be honest about the strength of the the evidence that's sustaining the position. Um, it is not unusual at all for us to want to overstate the strength of a position that we're that we're holding, but there's no way to to become aware of at least the possibility that I'm the weaker brother while we're doing that. So there, there's a certain sort of intellectual maturity and sobriety that I'm commending at this point. Um, we, we all know that some things, there's been, there's been so much information, so much experience, that these things are really beyond question with us anymore and and they should be but we know that other things um, um, you know we might characterize if we're being honest like I'm I'm fairly confident for this the, the evidence is pretty good if maybe if not altogether conclusive and arguments against it that I've experienced are always com are comparatively weak I feel pretty confident but then we also know that there's an area of things where we we have thoughts, we have inclinations. We know that there are, we've seen evidence and arguments for it, but perhaps we also have some unresolved issues with arguments and evidence against it. Um, it's there. It's there really that I'm wanting to get at things because a lot of times we will adopt a certain kind of bravado and want to pretend that we know more than what we know. 
this is not altogether honest this is not altogether sober and it incapacitates us from doing the job of of the weaker brother and i think that on some level we we know when this is happening we have this sinking feeling in our gut that we don't really know how to answer all of the questions but a lot of times what we don't have with respect to evidence and strong grounds and arguments we will try to overcompensate with forcefulness of expression and and other kinds of things or maybe just refusing to focus our minds on on contrary evidence contrary arguments and so on we can we can be really evasive in this regard um, but we this has to become our mental practice i'm not commending skepticism because there are some things that uh, that are altogether clear the evidence and the arguments are altogether conclusive um, they've been tested down through the ages and so on we really shouldn't have any questions anymore but um but there are those things where where there are questions where there are doubts if if we're honest and if we are uh, if we're intellectually keen enough to discern that by way of mental practice and then humble enough spiritually to admit that then we can at least raise the possibility maybe on this issue i am the weaker brother and so then my job in this particular thing is is simply not not to judge the stronger brother and so there will be an easier or a readier harmony he's not casting stumbling blocks and i'm not i'm not judging now i, I do think that the way Paul lays out the passage in, in Romans 14, even when the weaker brother can't identify him as such, there are lots of tools available to the stronger brother to still do a lot to maintain peace just on his end of things. But you might say that that's a less than ideal situation now twice removed. The ideal situation, everybody is stronger brother. Less ideal, there's a stronger and there's a weaker, but both are fulfilling their duties and so peace is maintained this is yet another step removed stronger brother recognizes it but the weaker brother doesn't and so the stronger brother has to be highly exercised in all of his tools to maintain um, to maintain the peace but all uh, hopefully you're starting to see the coherence of all, all of these these different parts I don't know if I've done a great job showing the coherence of all the parts, been working at it, but um, this is just another token that the, that the strictest position isn't always the right one just because it's the strictest. To say it like that almost makes it obvious, right? The biblical position is the right one. Faithfulness in ethics, a sound faith, is maintaining the system of ethics exactly as it came from the hands of God without changing it. Commandments as commandments, prohibitions as pro prohibitions, and things indifferent as things indifferent. When we begin to alter his system of ethics, it is bad for us. It is bad for us as individuals, and obviously it is 
it is bad for us in our relationships one with another. And so we need to be careful. Um, the weaker brother will have a tendency to think that the stronger brother is just being loose and thus he will judge him. But he's actually not right about that. The stricter position is not the right one necessarily. I'm not saying that the looser position is always the right one either. I'm saying the biblical position is the right one and we need to exercise ourselves to maintain that. There, it's. I think it's pretty rare for, well comparatively rare for really serious religionists to just think of a looser position as looser being more religious. Certainly not in our our circles. I think serious-minded religious people have a tendency to think that the stricter position is the more faithful position. But that's not that's not right. And maybe here our, our earlier reflections on Proverbs two are very helpful. We ought to exercise ourselves not in not in torturing ourselves to come up with the strictest practice. That doesn't seem to be biblical at all but rather exercising ourselves to understand um, what the scriptures are saying, right? Mining its ethical teaching for its treasures. And then once we get those treasures, preserve them whole and entire, seeking to receive the system of ethics exactly as, as it has come from the hand of God. But hopefully, even if we find ourselves in the the position of the weaker. Maybe if we find ourselves tempted to judge our brother in his practice, maybe, just maybe, we can pause and think carefully. How strong is my position, really? What are its grounds? What are its evidence? What are its arguments? What are the things that might, might argue or provide evidence to the contrary? So how strong is my position really? And when there are still lingering doubts, then perhaps we can exercise humility this is about where I am in my confidence in my position. So now I have to leave, leave room for those who seem to think that they know better. And maybe, maybe they do. Maybe they do. And that would, perhaps that would slow us down so that we could, we could fulfill the command not to judge, but rather to reserve judgment until we have, until we have clearer light. May God grant us wisdom and self-discipline in this regard. Our soundness in the faith is at stake. Our personal joy, vibrancy, enthusiasm is at stake. Our relationships with one another are at stake. And our witness to an un, uh, unbelieving world. Well, in a final analysis, there's there's quite a lot at stake. Let us pray together. 